and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. When I was younger, and pretty much every household in America had the newspaper delivered to their door, occasionally I would read what was perhaps the most popular column, syndicated column, in any newspaper, um, and that was Dear Abby. <laughs> Did you ever hear of Dear Abby? Uh, the advice column is still around on those places, those people that do still read newspapers, and also online. The, it's the daughter of the woman who originally wrote it. Her name wasn't Abby anyway. Um, neither was her sister's name, Ann Landers, although you may know that name for an advice column as well. Some Jewish name. Um, and... You know, people would write in with this column just asking for advice on a wide range of topics, and she would give advice. And, you know, it could be, how do I put up with my mother-in-law to, you know, what to do with my boyfriend. A lot of teenagers would write in for advice, you know. And she just gave this advice out. And people listened to it and followed it. Now, you may not ever want to write to Dear Abby, I don't know, maybe you've got a boyfriend, girlfriend problem, you do, but um, people do seek advice from lots of sources. And not just advice when it comes to relationships or that type of advice, we seek advice for matters great and small. If you have some ailment, if you've got a pain in your side and you don't know what's going on, you're going to probably end up seeking the advice of a doctor. Because that's the person that you would probably go to, you know, assuming that you've already prayed and, you know, had somebody minister and so forth, you'd end up at a doctor to ask for advice on what to do. And, and you most likely trust your doctor, right? Some not so much. <laughs> well, those of you that, that didn't jump in, perhaps you have good reason to. Um, According to a report by CBS News, each year in the, U in the U.S., approximately 12 million adults who seek outpatient medical care are misdiagnosed, according to a new study published in the journal BMJ Quality and Safety. This figure amounts to one out of 20 adult patients, and researchers say in half of those cases, the misdiagnosis has the potential to result in severe harm. One out of 20. We have more than 20 people in this room. So, you know, you never know. And yet we still go and seek advice. Of course, this was according to CBS News report, and you might be wondering, well, can you trust CBS News report? <laughs> And nowadays, people are especially skeptical when it comes to news and who can I trust, right? We hear about fake news. And then, you know, each side says, well, that guy's news is fake. And 
People don't know who to trust. And on every issue, you know, you can find, it's almost like now it seems that people sort of say, this is what I want to hear. I'm going to go to this source because I know that they're going to give me the particular slant on that story that already agrees with my thinking. And another group, why I'm going, to, those guys, they have nothing but lies. I'm going to go to this group, and so on and so forth. When it comes to any issue, one thing that I've discovered is that you do enough research and you'll find that I don't care what issue it is out there, what social issue, political issue, scientific issue, you name it, whatever the issue is, you will find men of great reputation, women of great reputation, people that are acclaimed experts in their field on both sides of that argument. You will find people that have great credentials, great following, great evidence to present on any side of any issue. And then that leaves you even all the more wondering, who do you believe, who do you trust? You can't find agreement on something as fundamental and universal to everyday life as the food we eat, <laughs> right? Now, that's pretty basic, and also seemingly pretty easy to figure it out, you know? Everybody eats. We don't have to go far to figure out how to see what the result is. And yet, you've got some people that say you should eat nothing but fats, and you've got other people that say you should eat nothing but proteins. You've got even some people that think that the best thing to do is eat just carbohydrates if you're on a diet. I feel like if you combine all of those, you should get the greatest effect since they're all effective for some people, right? Makes sense. Just like Paul likes my line about <clears throat> they say you, you are what you eat and I don't eat natural foods because I don't want to become a natural man. <laughs> you know, when it comes to food, when it comes to many of these issues. Um, they're all important, they're all important, but nothing is more important, nothing is more vital than when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to spiritual matters. And yet, even there, the question is risen, who do you trust? I, you know, I, you couldn't begin, there was a day when you could probably count the number of different denominations there are, but nowadays, the overwhelming majority of Christians, I think, no longer belong to one of those mainstream denominations. You have independent and non-denominational, whatever you know, terminology you want to use, us included. God doesn't care. The only terminology that God looks at is you're either Jew, Gentile, or Church of God. If you're born again in God's spirit, that's it. That's it. <laughs> but when it comes to looking and understanding and what do you believe, how do you know what you should follow? How do you know what you should trust? Well, that's something we're going to deal with here this morning. Turn to Proverbs 28. In life, and in just figuring out life, never mind getting to the things of God, really, a lot of people, they just trust their gut. They trust their own instinct, their own judgment. They trust their heart. But... The question is, is that a safe approach to take as well? 
In Proverbs 28, 26, it says, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, but whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. A lot of people trust their heart. And yet the Bible says, if you do that, you're a fool. You're crazy. You're crazy. And those of you that think, well, I like to trust my heart, ask yourself, has that always gotten you the right result? <laughs> Have you ever trusted your heart and found out, you know, that actually I was wrong. That, that did not work out well for me. Look at Jeremiah 17. Just a couple more verses on that same point. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful. It's deceitful. Your heart can fool you. Your heart can fool you. And sometimes that heart is just really great at rationalizing whatever you know, your real desire is, good, bad, or indifferent that it's just great to kind of, well, this is what I feel in my heart, but that may not be something good for you. Look at Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19. So many people live that way, you know? And especially as people have moved away from the standard of God's Word, as people have moved away from God, they've been encouraged more and more to just trust themselves and trust their heart. But, you know, think about that for a minute. What's in your heart? Were you born with all of those thoughts and all those beliefs? Was that, you know, did you come out and say, well, you know, I believe the best path, here you are, here's your little baby, you know, who just had a baby. The cops just had a baby. You know, we've got, you know, James, he's one and a half. We have another grandson that's six months. You take that, well, so you know, Sam, what do you believe? You're six months old, and you know, I'd like to find this out right now so we can accommodate you to your best of your wishes. No. What's in your heart is a result of all those centers of reference for learning that you've encountered over the course of a lifetime. And that's why Proverbs 19, 21 says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of what? The Lord. That shall stand. Many devices in a man's heart, but nonetheless, it's the counsel of the Lord that you can trust. It's that which will stand. Not all the different devices, all the different desires, all the different thinking in our heart, but it's God's Word that can really stand. And that's why when it comes to life and figuring out life, rather than writing Dear Abby or her sister, or just putting it out there on Facebook to have everybody weigh in on what they think you ought to do with your life. And, you know, we'll just kind of, we'll go with the majority. You know, whatever, if I can get kind of a consensus, we'll go with that. Or, you know, maybe if I just keep on looking, eventually I'll get somebody that'll tell me I should do what I already want to do. <laughs> you know, all these different approaches that people take, instead, it's the counsel of the Lord that we can trust. That will stand. Look at Psalm 20. And beyond just the personal issues of our life, when it comes to those other important issues of life, when it comes to those things that would be in the category of, you know, the things that people argue about on a political scale or so on and so forth, one thing that should be always considered, remembered, and given greater weight to than anything else is the truth expressed in this verse, 
Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Uh, chariots and horses. I don't know who trusts in chariots and horses. Those haven't been around since the days of Ben-Hur. <laughs> chariots and horses represent the strength of a kingdom, the strength of a kingdom. Back then it was, you know, horses and chariots. That's not usually used in battle nowadays. You know, some trust, though, in, in aircraft carriers and, you know, stealth jets and fighters and bombs and all of those things. Some trust in military might. And they trust in the strength and the power of a nation. And so they put their trust when it comes to their safety. They put their trust when it comes to their welfare in the hands of the nation. I can trust my government to take care of me. Or I can't trust my government anymore, and boy, am I mad about it. But you know what? You should never just put your blanket trust in a nation or the strength of it. Nations come and go, kingdoms, nations rise and fall. And the greatest, greatest, most powerful nations that once were on the face of the earth are not even powers nowadays. Greece isn't a major power. Rome is not a major power. Egypt is not a major power. You name all the great, the Assyrians, they're not major powers anymore. Genghis Khan, well, maybe his descendants. We're getting to China now, you know. <laughs> but all of that, you know, one of the greatest shocks to me was like when the, when the, when the Soviet Union fell apart, you know, and I know oh, Russia's getting stronger, eh, you know, for now. The point is, it's God that we put our trust in. You can turn to, there's a wonderful record I'd like to go into this morning with you. It's in 2 Chronicles 15. And it's a record about a man who once, who starts off, it's a king of Judah by the name of Asa. And this king, he starts off um, in the position of really trusting God, starts off doing great as a king, and by the end of his life, he sort of swerves away from that and doesn't have that same level of trust in God for whatever reason. Give you a little background about Asa. Asa was the king of Judah at the point in time where God's people were a divided kingdom. It started off as one kingdom when they came out of Egypt under Moses, and then you, the first king is Saul, hit, the next king is David, the next king is Solomon, and then after that, the kingdom divides. Solomon's son was named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was not, did not walk with God, and as a result, of, Solomon by the end of his life didn't either. As a result of that, the kingdom splits, and only two tribes stay with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The other ten go with Jeroboam, another king. And that's the divided kingdom. And I'll point this out here. I haven't got to play with this for a while. On this map... Um, this is actually the New Testament, so the borders aren't the same, but even when it comes to the Old Testament, the borders are constantly shifting, so you, know, you might as well just kind of get an idea of here. The kingdom of Israel, the original kingdom, kind of was along this whole coast, and that region is referred to as Palestine. When it split, you had up in the north, you had Israel 
and down in the south you had Judah. And that split, that border kind of goes from a little bit above the Dead Sea and it kind of arches over to the coast here. So you've got Judah down there, you've got Israel up here. I'll also point on the map a couple of other places. Up here, this region is Syria, and you have red Syria here, which is modern-day Syria, and in black, what the original old Syria was. Down here, you have Egypt. So sandwiched between Syria and Egypt are Judah and Israel, God's people. Syria and Egypt are not God's people. All of these guys, over the course of history, are fighting with each other at different times. And in the immediate history that we're looking at right here with Esau, Israel and Judah have had long-running tensions ever since the divide of the kingdom, and it's erupted into actual warfare a couple of times, once under the reign of Esau. And we're going to see that as we get into it. So, oh, something else I wanted to tell you about Asa. Besides, he's Asa, if you haven't figured it out, he is the great-grandson of Solomon. Okay, he's the great-grandson of Solomon. He takes over after the death of his father, and according to Alfred Edersheim, who did the seminal work in, on Old Testament history in the 19th century, you can calculate Esau's age at the time he began to reign to be only about 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, 10 or 11, um, like Noah's 11, so <laughs> I'd trust Noah. Not sure I'd trust him to reign, though. Now, this is a kind of a good thing for Judah because with his father dying, he actually, the custom was, he would be raised by the high priest. And that's why out of kind of nowhere seemingly, Esau starts walking with God when his father was a terrible idolater and so was his mother. How did Esau become such a good guy? Because he was raised by the high priest. So with that background in mind, <clears throat> we'll get to Second Chronicles. I told you these guys were all fighting, but they also were constantly making alliances one against the other, and I won't try to explain all that detail, but you'll see a couple of different alliances mentioned in this record. In 2 Chronicles 15, in verse 1, And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed. This is the prophet at the time, the man of God. And he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye, me, hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. This is what Asa is told at the early days of his reign by the prophet. If you seek God, he'll be with you. If you want to be with him, he'll be there for you. But if you abandon him, then he's going to let you on your own. Skip down to verse 8. And when Esau heard these words and the prophecy of Obed the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and out of all the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim, and renewed the altar of the Lord, which was before the porch of the Lord. His father had brought in all these idols, his father and his grandfather. They had brought in all these idols. 
And he removed all the idols from those two tribes of Benjamin and Judah that he reigned over. Verse 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. Asa and that kingdom of Judah, they make a covenant that they will do what the prophets said. That they will seek God with all their heart and with all their soul. How wonderful. Verse 15. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire. And he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. They had rest while they did that. They weren't at war. They weren't constantly being troubled and plagued by other people. They had rest. Verse 16. And also concerning Maacah, the mother of Asa the king, he removed her from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burnt it at the brook Kidron. Even his own mother, he didn't withhold from removing her from her position because she had introduced idolatry. It didn't matter. He had no friends, even family members, when it came to taking a stand for God. He did what was right before the Lord. That's, that's what, what we're required of, too. Jesus Christ said that, you know, anybody that places anyone before him isn't worthy of him. Verse 17. But the high places were not taken away out of Israel, Nevertheless, the heart of Esau was perfect all his days. It says the heart of Esau was perfect, and yet that doesn't mean that he was a perfect king and that he did everything right, as is seen right in that verse. He didn't, as much as he did good, he didn't get rid of all the high places. He didn't get rid of every place that people went to seek after other gods. And he makes other mistakes that we'll see. But yet... There are so few, even halfway decent kings in the history of Israel and Judah that Esau is considered one of the better ones. Verse 18. And he brought into the house of God the things which his father had dedicated. His father had dedicated these things to other gods. And now he takes them and rededicates them to the true God. And that he himself had dedicated Silver and gold and vessels. Esau brings all this wealth, all these silver and gold and everything else into the house of the Lord, has offerings unto the Lord. And there it is residing in the temple of the house of God. Verse 19. And there was no more war unto the five and thirtieth year of the reign of Esau. He reigns for 41 years. For 35 years from this point on, everything's peaceful. The land has rest. There's no war going on because during this time, he is putting his trust in God like the prophet had told him. You wonder sometimes what happens. You know, Why does a person start off so great or why does a person go 35 years or better? And trusting God and walking with God and then something some reason they forget. They forget that God's been taking care of them. And God has proven himself to Esau on many, many occasions. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. 
In the sixth and thirtieth year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel. Now remember, this is a different king. This is a king of Israel. We've got Israel up here and Judah down here. And even though these guys once were all one kingdom, and even though they're brethren, you know, same God's people out of Israel, Jacob originally, now these guys are going to war. And that king of Israel came up against Judah and built Ramah, a fortress in this city, to the intent that he might let none go out, of, go out or come in to Esau, king of Judah. Then Esau brought out silver and gold out of the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Benadad, king of what? Syria, Syria that dwelt in Damascus, saying... There is a league between me and thee, an alliance, okay? There's an alliance between me and thee. He's made an alliance between Syria and Judah, and his father had had an alliance. His father had an alliance, and when Esau first started to reign, he broke that alliance. And then when he broke it, Syria made an alliance with Israel against Judah, but Judah, is Syria just did that because it wanted somebody on their side to be fortified against Judah. Now, he's coming to Syria and say, Switch his alli change alliances. Drop those guys and make an alliance with me again. There's a league between me and thee as there was between my father and thy father. Behold, I have sent thee silver and gold. Where did he get that silver and gold that he was sending him? Out of the temple. He had dedicated this to God. He had given it to God. Was it his still now to go give to some nation of unbelievers, some nation of heathen? No, it wasn't. Break thy league with Basha, king of Israel, that he may depart from me. He wants him to make an alliance and break that other alliance so that he can be on his side. Is he still trusting God? He's trusted God in the past, but now for some reason, instead, he's trying to work it out on his own, make his own alliances, trust his flesh, trust the horses and chariots rather than God. And Benadad, verse 4, hearkened unto King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they smote a bunch of people in all the store cities of some place. Verse 7. In all that time, Hanani the seer, the prophet, this is another prophet. We had Azariah before, now we have Hanani. The prophet came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria, and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host, with many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Up until this time, 35 years, no wars. 
Now, instead of trusting God, God who had sided with him before and beat a much bigger army than he's up against now and showed him that he would take care of him, now he's abandoned that God and trusting in the arm of the flesh. And the prophet says, because you've done that, you'll have wars. And you know what? If you had trusted God, not only would you have been okay against Israel, you would have been okay against all of Syria. All of Syria. Syria is part of the Assyrian Empire that takes Israel captive. <laughs> and he could have defeated all of them had he trusted God in this situation. Where did I leave off? Verse 10. And Asa said, oh my gosh, what have I done? This is terrible. What a mistake I've made. God, please forgive me. I wish. <laughs> Instead, verse 10. Then Asa was wroth with the seer. He's mad at the prophet. He's steamed. He's so steamed that he goes on to say, and he put him in a prison house, for he was in a rage with him because of this thing. Rather than be sorry, he gets mad at the prophet for telling him this. He gets mad at the prophet for telling him God's word, and he throws him in jail. He throws him in jail. He's in such a rage. And not only that, it says, and Asa oppressed some of the people the same time. He also goes and starts oppressing those people that he now perceives as enemies. Verse 11. And behold, the acts of Asa first and last, both, lo, they are written in the book of the king of Judah and Israel. And it goes on to say, well, okay, we'll come back to that. Asa stopped trusting in the true God. And because of that, there was war, there was no longer peace, and Asa's life just continues to go downhill. And we'll look at more about that in a minute here. Continuing in the record in 2 Chronicles 16, we see that Esau's life personally also deteriorates. It just goes downhill. And in verse 12, we read, And Esau, in the thirty and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to what? The physician. So, you know, here's this, again, what in many ways is still a good king. It's not like he's, you know, now set up the idols again and worshiping the false gods and so forth, but he just doesn't have that same level of trust in God that he once did. And when he gets this, this terrible disease, rather than first going to God... He goes to the physicians. There's nothing wrong with going to a doctor. But you should first seek the Lord. You should first go to God in prayer. And go to God for, in your own prayer life. And if you don't get results that way, have another believer, one that knows how to operate manifestations preferably, minister healing to you, pray with you. And then... If you still need to, you know, well, then you, you can spend the money. Then you can go to the doctor. You know, better to just have God take care of it. But then if you do go to the doctor, keep your trust in God. Remember those doctors, you got a 1 in 20 chance if it's not working out for you. <laughs> but you up your odds considerably if you still trust God when you do it. 
You know, you trust God. You trust God. Esau didn't. And what happened? Verse 13. And Esau slept with his fathers and died in the 140th year of his reign. He didn't get healed. He didn't get delivered because he just lost that trust. He lost that trust. We have to trust in God. And we have to trust in God and his word. It's the word of God that is safe to trust in when it comes to counsel. The counsel of the Lord that's contained in his word. I keep this plaque on my desk. As you can see, a Bible. Some of you can see, those close enough can see. It's a Bible and there's a sword going across it representing the sword of the Spirit. And that's referencing the verse that says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the what? Heart. heart. The heart. Remember the heart that you can't really always trust in? Well... The Word of God can separate that which is right and that which is wrong in the heart. That's the standard. How do I know if I can trust my heart? Well, line it up with God's Word. Does it line up with God's Word? In 1 Thessalonians 5, I'll read this one to you. If you're fast, you can go there. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, it says, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Prove all things. What does that mean? Try everything out and see if you like it. No. You know, Solomon tried that approach. Um, you read Ecclesiastes, he tried that, and he kept on coming up with the same conclusion. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's all empty, and it's all just troubling to the soul. <laughs> That's what all those things in life are. In the end, Solomon comes to the conclusion that we're right at, you know. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God and take it to his word. Does it line up with the word? What does the word of God say? Chapter and verse. What does the word say? It is written. That was the standard of Jesus Christ. That has to be our standard. It is written. In every situation in life, take it back to God's word. Take it back to God's word. And in those, in, in those specifics, where you might need more specific information than what the general counsel of God's Word would give you, if that's your heart to seek the Lord, then with the Spirit of God, you'll get any other specific information that you might need. That's the way it works. Well, I'd like you to go to Jeremiah chapter 36. We'll read about another king. This fellow never starts off good. He doesn't have any time being good. But this fella not only didn't trust God's word, you know, like Esau in that one situation, he wants to get rid of God's word. In Jeremiah 36, and this king is a king by the name of, Jehoi of Jehoiakim. Verse 1. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, a scroll. Okay, you know, you've seen those big scrolls. 
Take a scroll and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah even unto this day. The book of Jeremiah. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I propose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So God tells the prophet Jeremiah to write down these words. These words that he's been telling them for a long time. That the prophet Jeremiah, before Jeremiah he was telling these guys this. But in the prophet of Jeremiah, he's been telling them for years how God is calling them back to him, calling them to stop following these other gods, these idols, and to return unto him. And that if they will do this, that he will be able to take care of them, and if not, they will go into captivity just like Israel did. Now, this happens many, many years later than the record we looked at earlier. You know, <clears throat> Esau was the great-grandson of Solomon. We're way down the list of kings now. We're getting to the end of Judah. There's only a couple of kings after this, and then they're gone. And things start to happen to Judah under the reign of Jehoiakim. If you don't know, Israel goes into captivity first, and then Judah much, much later by the Babylonians. Verse 4. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. So Baruch is the scribe. He's, he's just taking dictation here. That's what's going on. God's telling Jeremiah what he wants written. Jeremiah's dictating, and Baruch, the scribe, is writing it down in the scroll. Verse 5. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. I, I can't get out right now. I can't go to the temple. I want you to. Therefore, verse 6, go thou and read in the roll, in that scroll, which thou hast written from my mouth, the words of who? The Lord. the Lord, in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day, and also... Thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that came out of their cities. Go read that, go to the temple, and read it to everybody that's there. Read it to everybody that's there, and there's going to be people, since it's a fasting day, that have come in from all these different cities. Read it to, to all of them. Verse 7, It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord, and will return every one from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord hath pronounced against his people. Maybe they'll change. We'll give them one last shot here. Go read this to them. Maybe they'll change. Verse 8. And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet had commanded him, reading in the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. And it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people that came from the cities of Judah unto Jerusalem. Then read Baruch in the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Jemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the higher court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the ears of all the people. 
When Micaiah, the son of Jemariah, the son of Shaphan, had heard out of the book all the words of the Lord, then he went down into the king's house, into the scribe's chamber. And lo, all the princes sat there. Elisha, the scribe, and Deliah, the son of that guy, and a few other people, and all the princes. Verse 13. Then Micaiah declared unto them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the ears of the people. So there's this one fella who's in the temple, Micaiah. When he hears, he goes to the king's house. And there's this place where all these other scribes are hanging out and all the princes, all these kind of sub-rulers. And he said, boys, you won't believe what I just heard. You won't believe what was just written in this scroll. And he tells them everything that was said. And how Jeremiah's been saying all this stuff. And man, they got to make a change real quick here or they're done for. Verse 15. And they said unto him, sit down now and read it in our ears. We want to hear this for ourselves. So Baruch read it in their ears. Now it came to pass when they heard all the words, they were afraid both one and the other. And said unto Baruch, we will surely tell the king of all these words. Man. This is serious stuff here. You know, what, what's going to happen is a big deal. This is a lot bigger than, you know, all the stuff people are talking about now of what might happen. This is going to happen. The Lord's telling us this is our last chance, and we're going to be taken into captivity. They're going to pull us out of here. All these terrible things are happening. We ought to go tell the king about this. Verse 18. Oh, no, 17. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Uh, tell, uh, we want to know exactly how this happened. You, you know, you said you got it from Jeremiah. We want to know exactly how you got this. Then Baruch answered them, Okay. He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth. <laughs> and I wrote them with ink in the book. <laughs> Can't get much simpler than that, can it, folks? <laughs> you know, how did we get the Bible today? Same process. God spoke to the prophet. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They wrote it down, or they had a scribe write it down in the book for them. And we have it today. That's simple. That's how we got the word. Whose word was it? Who was the, who was the writer? Uh, I know, that's a trick question. Well, was it Baruch or was it Jeremiah? How are you considering here? Well, okay. It doesn't matter because <clears throat> although the scribe wrote it down, the words came to Jeremiah, we consider him the writer. But what's really important is who is the author? Yeah. God. Uh, yeah. No question on that one. You don't have to scratch your head on, well, <laughs> it's God. God's the author. God's the author of the Bible all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. Verse 19, Then said the princes unto Baruch, Go hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where he be, where you be. Because they know that this might not sit well with that king, since a lot of the words are against what he's been doing. Verse 21. <clears throat> Verse 20, And they went to the king into the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elisha the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. These guys are smart enough to try to keep that 
roll, that book, that scroll, protected, and they go and tell the king what's going on. But the king, he wants more than that. Verse 21, so the king sent to Jehudai to fetch the roll. He says, I want to see this for myself. I don't want to just hear your report. Go get me this book. And he took it out of Elisha of the scribe's chamber. And Jehudai read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. It's wintertime. It's cold. And he's got a fire going on in the fireplace, a nice big fire to keep them warm. Verse 23. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves, he gets only through a few pages of this, that he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. He says, oh, yeah? I'll show you exactly what I think of these words. I'll show you exactly what I think of what you had written down here, what you wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah. You give me that. And he takes it and he brings out his little pocket knife and he cuts it into pieces, cuts it all up, and then throws it in the fire. There, that's it. Done with that. Problem gone. Problem gone. I just got rid of the words. I got rid of the word of God. Who believes that stuff? Who believes that stuff? Who believes what's written there? That old book, that silly old book, you believe that nonsense? That was his attitude. Attitude of a lot of people today, isn't it? Yes. A lot of people. A lot of people, they take just as much a crack at God's word, think they can get rid of it, think they can ignore it, think that if they don't believe it, it ain't going to happen. Well, we'll see how that works out for them. <laughs> Verse 24. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments. Didn't go out and get a tuxedo. They didn't rent their garments means they didn't tear their mantle, which was a sign of despair, of, of you know, repentance. They didn't do any of that stuff. They should have. That's what they should have done. They should have been afraid. They should have rent their mantle. They should have put sackcloth and ashes on, all the things that were the custom of that time to show that they were sorry. They should have been sorry in their heart. That's the point. But they weren't. They weren't. <clears throat> They weren't afraid, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Nevertheless, Elton and Delilah and Jemariah had made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. There are these few guys that said, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Don't do that. But he didn't listen to them. Verse 26. But the king commanded Jehemiel, the son of Oh, I love these names. Hamelech and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelah, oh my goodness, we're just going to keep going, to take Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord hid them. We were talking about that last week, the Lord hitting, hiding people, right? Yeah. So he sends, you know, you, 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 go get those guys. Go get Baruch, go get Jeremiah, bring them in here. I'm going to cut them up and throw them in the fire or something. But the Lord hid them. The Lord took care of them. Verse 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah saying, oh my goodness, I'm, what are we going to do? He got rid of the word and it's all over. I guess he wins, right? No. no. Verse 28. Take thee again another. So he burnt the roll. Okay. Go get another roll. Get, get another you know, blank book here. 
and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. Write down everything that you wrote before. I want you to write down the same exact thing. I'll tell it to you again. You write down exactly what we said before in a new book. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of, his, of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, thou hast burnt this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein? saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land and shall come, cause to cease from thence man and beast. Why would you say that these things were going to happen? Why would you say all this bad stuff was going to happen? That Babylon would come and take us into captivity. You're upsetting people. You know, I don't want to hear this. Verse 30. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil which I have pronounced against them, but they hearkened not. Then took Jeremiah another roll, and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. He not only didn't get rid of the word of God, he got more. More stuff that he didn't want to hear. More judgment against Israel, Judah, and very specifically now, him for all that he did in trying to get rid of the Word of God, treating it that way. There's a wonderful <clears throat> little poem called The Anvil of God's Word that I thought about in reading this. The Anvil of God's Word. Got the wrong page marked. It's a small book, I'll find it. <laughs> People can try to take a crack at the word, but they're the ones that crack up in the process. Last eve, I paused beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon, yet through the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. The Word of God has stood the test of time. It's the Word of God that lives and abides forever. Jehoiakim didn't get rid of it. The critics since haven't gotten rid of it. The critics today won't get rid of it. I don't care if they ban it in every country on the face of the earth. If they outlaw it, if they want to throw people in prison, the Word of God lives and abides forever. And if we take a stand on it, we can trust for God to take care of us. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, all right, you can go there. 
I, I referenced it, but we'll read it so you know I didn't make it up. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. That's how we got God's Word. It came by holy men of God that spoke. And because it is God's Word, that verse that precedes that that we read there in verse 20 is so vital to recognize that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means that no one has the right to say, well, this is what I think it means. This is what I think it means. Early on, I said, how do you know who you trust when it comes to the things of God? Because, you know, the fellow over on that, in that church across the street, he'll tell you one thing, and the fellow down the street on, in that church, he'll tell you another. You go ask this friend, and they'll say one thing, and that friend will say another. And you'll find a whole multiplicity of different viewpoints when it comes to what is truth. Who do you believe? Who do you trust? Do again, do you go with the consensus of, you know, opinion like people do on Facebook? You know, should that be your approach when it comes to the things of God? Well, <clears throat> the majority of scholars believe. I love that phrase. You encounter that phrase often when you're reading different works around God's Word. It's sometimes helpful to understand God's Word. And they'll say things like that. The majority of scholars. Oh, well, the majority of scholars, scholars, my goodness, scholars believe this. Well, then that's what we should believe because these are scholars. Look at all the letters after their names. These are, these are, are you know, men with great reputations. He's, he's got you know, a Ph.D., and you know, he's got a B.A., and he's got you know, a Ph.D. in B.S., and all these other things. <laughs> we must believe those, those professors. We must believe those scholars. Or my, my, my pastor, he's a good guy. I, he's a really good guy. I, sh I should be able to trust him. He's so sincere. But you know what? Many of you do know. Sincerity is no guarantee for truth. Sincerity is no guarantee for truth. I'll read you an excerpt out of a book that... <laughs> I wrote. <laughs> Not, not claiming to be a great scholar, but endeavoring to be a workman of God's word. And, and I say all that in, very, in seriousness, all seriousness. You know, because, and I'm not putting down scholars. I'm not putting down professors. I'm not putting down clergymen, reverends, or anybody else. But you've got to go back to what does the word of God say. If what that professor says lines up with what the Word of God says, then trust him. If that, what that clergyman says lines up with what the Word of God says, then trust him. If what your friend says lines up with that, then trust him. But if it doesn't, then don't. Today, many people claim to speak for God, and yet they do not agree in what they say. What do you believe? Throughout history, volumes have been written that purport to be given by inspiration of God, but critical differences are discovered within their contents. How can you possibly know which do contain the genuine truth? Equally learned men, the most respected professors and theologians, 
disagree on significant doctrinal matters, and in some cases, even the very authority of the scriptures themselves. What authority can you rely on? 2 Timothy 2.15, you can turn there. 2 Timothy 2.15. This is such a vital verse of scripture for every believer, every Christian, every son of God to know. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Men and women stand approved before God according to their workmanship of his word. Rightly dividing the word of truth requires the careful study of the scriptures. No, it is not necessary, practical, or perhaps even possible for every Christian to become a great biblical scholar, possessing an extensive knowledge in every field of biblical research. The body is not one member but many, and there are those men and women who most suited to develop themselves as experts in certain academic backgrounds of scriptural studies. Yet each and every believer must accept the responsibility to search the scriptures daily in order to discover the truth. Look at Acts 17.11. Each believer has to have that, accept that responsibility to study the word, to know the word, to rightly divide it. How can you do that? Well, there are keys. There are keys that work with a mathematical exactness and a scientific precision. Keys to study to studying God's word. Keys to be able to rightly divide it. And they're not terribly difficult. You know, I learned these keys in a class that I took in three weeks' time. Many people here have done the same. A class called Power for Abundant Living. Where these keys to the word's interpretation are taught that anybody can use. And if you will faithfully use those keys, you can know for yourself exactly what the word of God says. Not take my word for it, just because I wrote a book. Not take somebody else's word for it just because they wrote a book. But study to know yourself. In Acts 17.11, that's what these guys did. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. We must study the word of God ourselves in order to find out what is the will of God and not simply take someone else's word for it. Study the Word. Learn the Word. Learn the Word so you know that the things that you believe are right. Because I was once told a lot of things about God that proved not to be what His Word said. And we have to take on that responsibility to study so that we can know God's Word. And then having that truth, knowing that it is God's word, that it is the truth, we can stake our very lives upon it. We don't have to trust what this fellow says, not just about what's in the Bible, but in how to live life, because the word of God is our only rule for faith and practice. It's our only rule that we can trust, that we can rely on, because it is the word of God. Down the word is on my mind